I'm talking to you, darling. You know, for two years. <laughs> Don't get nervous, eh? I know you're feeling that rush up and down your spine. For two years, I've been looking at you and I've been thinking, oh, how sweet it would be. So I'll tell you what. You allow me to give you one little kiss on those sweet little lips. Doc, I'm from the future. I came here in a time machine that you invented. Now I need your help to get back to the year 1985. From Television City in Hollywood. All right, you guys, you know this is for fun, so take it easy and give them a good show. Now stay tuned for professional wrestling live from the Springfield Crapolarium. Tonight, a Texas death match. Dr. Hillbilly versus the Iron Yuppie. One man will actually be unmasked and killed in the ring. I hope they kill that Iron Yuppie. Thinks he's so big. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Greetings from Allentown and State in front of a live studio audience. everyone and welcome to episode 220 of Greetings Fallon Town. I am your host, Peter Winston. And today, I'm going to let this last part play. Ba, 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 ba. There we go. Yes, World-class championship wrestling from January 19th, 1985. Because sometimes I'll see an episode pop up on YouTube and I'll just figure, what the hell? Kind of like Doc Brown at the end of Back to the Future. Like what you heard at the top of the show. You might be wondering, well, why didn't you just do a show for Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, who's been covered so many times on Greetings from Allentown? I, I will get to that next time, whether it be next week or the week after, because uh, he is somebody who, along with Duggan, Duggan's probably in first place for most appearances, but or- Orndorff has certainly made more than his share because... After all, you know, golden era WWF and then into WCW in the mid-90s. So there's a lot of it there as well. I can't remember if he was on the Herb Abrams show that I did a couple months ago. But I also figured it's been since last September that I did a world-class show. So 10 months, probably a little overdue. Might be a little overdue for Mid-South and Memphis as well. But I'll get to those in due time. But let me get in my plugs. You can email the show, greasemountown at gmail.com. Facebook.com slash blah, blah, blah. And on Twitter, at GF Allentown Pod. That is at GF Allentown Pod. And if, even though I did not do this program last week, GFA Live continues on the weekends. Keithy and I watched the Raw from July 11th, 1994. It was on the 27th anniversary, featuring Bret Hart versus the 123 Kid. I encourage you to check that out because I. <laughs> I was very angry at the beginning of that podcast. I mean, I, I bleeped myself nine times during the cold open, or at least nine times, because I was mad about the MLB draft, which I swear to God, it must be. I, I've discussed MLB draft more than any other wrestling podcast, like on his, you know, nominally wrestling podcast. But I was also on the 
place to be pop experiences year in pop 1990 that show came out on thursday the 8th so go back into the archives check that out year in pop 1990 where i got very upset about the american league cy young award voting that year baseball 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 but seriously i should probably step away from the sport for a little bit because it's driving me mad it's not like i'm gonna be able to go to any minor league games at any point soon because you know i'm busy on the weekends coming up even on sunday and uh, I don't know, I, I'm, I have not committed the schedules to memory. So maybe I should look into other things, such as this past weekend when I visited the in-laws for the first time in 16, 17 months, something like that. And of course, when you go between Massachusetts and New York, un- unless you're going to Albany, in which case I don't know why the hell you're doing that, but you have to go through, and I'm talking Long Island here, you have to go through Connecticut in order to get there. There's there's really no choice in the matter. And Connecticut, as Jim Ross said, is an overpriced hellhole. And those are words that I think about every single time I enter the state. Now, if you think I'm just, you know, doing mindless Connecticut bashing, th- this is actually pretty low-key. Concer- th- this is about the level of somebody living in Connecticut for, I don't know, the last 25 years. We probably have. But there is one thing in that godforsaken state it's called Moe's. Yes, I know it's a chain, but you never see anything but chains in rest areas anyway. So we decided, my wife and I, to hold out for the Moe's in Milford, Connecticut. I don't even know what town it is. It's past New Haven. So you get past, you're more than halfway there. You settle down, have a nice burrito. And the problem is we left a little bit late. So by the time we get there, it's about 7.20. Figure, okay, well, it's a little bit late for dinner, but but it's still fine. It's not absurd or anything. And it's a rest area. I mean, you know, stuff's going to be open. Well, no. Apparently, we are not back to normal quite yet because most of the places were closed in there. And as for Moe's, it had been replaced by a Connecticut tourism ad. Yes, it was boarded up. And I was left with the choice of either McDonald's which if you listen to one of the early episodes, you heard me explain why I have not eaten at McDonald's in now over 25 years. Or I could maybe get Panda Express. I don't even know if they were open. Like, there were, like, some sort of weird teas. There was, like, three people milling around. But I had Chinese food the night before. I didn't want Panda Express. That would have been, you know, a step down from my local Chinese place. So that left one thing, and that would be... Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, excuse me, just Dunkin' now is what they want to be called because we should not think about their donut-making ability over the last 25 years because it is terrible compared to pretty much any local place you could find. But, all right, yeah, I can have a nice iced coffee. But the thing was, I was starving. All I wanted was a freaking burrito. So I made a, a crucial error. And as somebody who has been in Dunkin' approximately... 78,000 times, I should not have made this mistake where, all right, a bacon, egg, and cheese on a bagel. Oh, what kind of bagel? And I look and I see, ah, sesame. And then I didn't process through my brain that there's only two of them left, which means that they've probably been sitting there forever. And sure enough, it was like eating a egg-like sponge on like a brick, basically between two bricks. I mean, I'm surprised I didn't have, like, teeth fall out just from the effort that it took in order to bite into that thing. So, yeah, apparently we are not back to normal because all these places are closing at 6 or 7 o'clock. And I don't I, – I think I understand why is that they're having trouble hiring people back and can't staff the full day. But, you know, I would say be a little bit more creative about it. You know, Subway, you probably don't need to be open for breakfast – 
I mean, let, let's just, don't open from you know nine to seven. Maybe open from like twelve to ten. Maybe that would be a little bit better. I, I don't know. But the important thing was that I made it to Long Island and I got to have my New York bagels, which I had mailed to me, you know, over the last year and a half. But it's it's just not the same. They get smushed down a little bit. Although I did enjoy a flagel, which apparently is just a really smushed down bagel. And I thought to myself, well, maybe there's less calories because there's less area. But <laughs> it's just good science, you know. I did refer to my trip back through Connecticut where I go 95 to 395 to get to where I'm going, which basically maximizes the amount of time that I'm going to be in Connecticut, which is unfortunate, except if you've driven 91 north to 84 east, that is basically a death trap of an intersection. So I, I don't even bother going through that, okay? I don't, I don't need people rear-ending me, at, at, least, at least there. I, I don't want it to happen there in the middle of Connecticut. I've already, I actually did get rear-ended in Connecticut July 4th weekend in 2011, and it sucked. I had to drive the rest of the way home. My bumper was destroyed enough that it was in an auto body place for 10 days. So, yeah, I don't like Connecticut. Not, not exactly the most uncommon opinion, but I just need to say that because I've only spent a little time there in the last year and a half. You know, a minor league baseball game that drove me crazy, taking it back to the thing I was talking about earlier. And sure enough, this, you know, the New York to Boston and vice versa drive. So world-class championship wrestling, which I, I have not done too many of these. I know I did one of the Jay Saldi episodes from 82, and I did one from 83 as well. I can't remember if I've done one from 84. I mean, in fact, this might only be the third one that I've done. So 85 is not a year that I have covered uh, for world class, and it's not one that I've really watched a whole lot of because, as somebody who used to listen to the great podcast Worldcast covering world class championship wrestling, they went from eighty two, which was the earliest episodes on the good version of the WWE Network, up through basically Kerry winning the title in May of nineteen eighty four. So once you get past that, I was kind of watching and following. The episodes, like if they were covering this one on the podcast, I would watch it on the network at some morning that week. But I don't know. I, I guess I just don't watch as much wrestling these days. I think these episodes are on the Peacock version now, but this one is on YouTube. So that's good at the very least. I mean, that was the whole original concept for the show is that everything I would do would be off of YouTube. But Little did I know that there would be so many purges over time. But 85 World Class was really the last good year that they had as a company. You got Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams. I mean, as a heel duo, uh, one of the best ones of the 1980s. They're actually not on the show, though, so I should probably minimize my time actually talking about them. But Adams had turned on the Von Erichs in 84, and he hooked up with Gino and eventually they end up getting their comeuppance, their head shaves, head shaved in the fall. But then eventually Gino dies in January of 86, basically starting off a an absolute year from hell for them. Where Kerry Von Erich has his motorcycle accident in June, of which I never really looked into the details of what happened. Like what happened with his foot at the time of the accident. And I'm not even going to repeat it because it's pretty freaking gruesome. And you can look it up for yourself because I just don't feel like repeating it. And, of course, he tried to return too soon. But that was in 87. 
86, Gino dies, like right at the beginning of the year. I mean, that, that basically a chilling vision of things to come. And then the Freebirds, who at least we're going to see one of them on this show, they are gone for good here. They're over in UWF land. So things just do not feel the same in world class at 86. And then into 87, it gets a little bit worse. It has its moments in 88. And then 89 has the cool Eric Embry angle with Skandor Akbar and all that. Another thing that happened in 86 was the booker Ken Mantell left and took a lot of people with him going to Mid-South. So not not a whole lot going on after this calendar year. But January of 85, things are still going, I would say, relatively okay. There's still members in good standing of the National Wrestling Alliance, which they would pull out of in, of course, 1986. But a lot of that was because Fritz could not get dates on the world champion, meaning Ric Flair was not going to come to the Sportatorium. Oh, wait. Ric Flair is on this show right here defending the title against Terry Gordy. And I have to confess something, that I knew that the Freebirds were babyfaces at a certain point when they came back. But I didn't understand how that happened because, as I said, I didn't watch the fall of 1984 world-class TV. I kind of stopped at a certain point. So maybe I should go back. The only issue that I could foresee is that I'm not able to find it on Peacock. Now, you might say, Pete, don't you have a voice remote? And yes, I do, but sometimes it doesn't always work as it should. So why don't I just, all I have is the baseball all-star game on mute here. Why don't I test this out and see what happens if I do a search for world-class championship wrestling on Peacock. Watch Peacock TV, world-class championship wrestling. All right. Well, at least it understood my accent and everything. So she'll see what it brings me to. Oh, it says loading world-class championship wrestling. You are entering a third-party app. It's like, come on. All right. I am I am a Comcast subscriber, but it's a third-party app. I mean, I always thought that this was, like, built into my cable, really. And, in fact, it should be. It should just be a separate on-demand menu that would make it a little bit easier for me. Oh, who's watching? Yeah. I, I, they make me set up a profile, and I have, like, a picture of Leslie Nope there. I don't, I don't know why. Oh, so it did send me to World Class Championship Wrestling, Seven Seasons, Watch season one, episode two. <laughs> the fact that the, they have not corrected for that when no wrestling fan thinks in that kind of terminology, although apparently all the Raws through history have been... Like, if you go to your program guide on Monday, it will say season you know 29 or 30 or whatever the hell it is. And it just goes January to December. It's none of that, oh, it's the season premiere of Raw. I mean, that, that, that kind of thing just does not exist. So I think this is season four, if you're looking for it on Peacock. I don't know why the hell I'm doing this. Like, I'm just illustrating to you right now how long it takes me to do this. I just changed the batteries in this remote. It's very delayed in terms of, oh, now finally it lands on season four. And I scroll over, and of course, it is the third episode. NWA champion Ric Flair faces Terry Gordy in the main event. Shawn Michaels versus Billy Jack Haynes. Yes, that is a match that occurs on this show, and I am so excited about it because, well, it goes the way you think it would if I was the booker or if I was the producer of that match. Hey, Billy, go out there and kick Shawn's ass. All right, fine. That's pretty much what happened. I know, spoiler on that one, but, you know, it is what it is. 
So I think I've stalled long enough here. This was almost like a Zabisco-esque effort by me. <laughs> Just go right to it. World-class championship wrestling for January 19th, 1985. When you get to a certain point in these world-class shows, there becomes a question of who's going to be the play-by-play guy here? Is it going to be Mark Lorenz or is it going to be Bill Mercer? And in this case, we got Bill Mercer. And I'm actually glad for that because while Mark Lorenz is fine, I like Bill Mercer's weird, goofy charm for some reason. <laughs> like, no, is he is he the greatest announcer in the world? No, he isn't. But for some reason, he says things and puts it in a certain way that uh, amuses me. Welcome to World Class Championship Wrestling from the World Fame Sportatorium here in downtown Dallas, Texas, the most famous wrestling arena in the world. We bring you World Class Championship Wrestling. I'm Bill Mercer, and great to have you with us wherever you may be throughout the world. And tonight, a World Heavyweight Championship match, our main event. It features the Freebird, Terry Gordy, challenging the World Heavyweight Champion, Ric Flair, for the famous belt. By the way, Bill Mercer, 95 years old, still alive, covered the Kennedy assassination. There's not very many of those people, basically down to him and Rather, Dan Rather, at this point. (laughs) So Mark Lorenz is actually the ring announcer, and I was delighted and surprised by the fact that he gets kind of the Texas version of the Joe McHugh introductory speech. Welcome to World Class Championship Wrestling here at the World Famous Sportatorium in Dallas. World Class Championship Wrestling is the only wrestling promotion seen around the globe. All matches are sanctioned by the National Wrestling Alliance with presiding officials Bronco Lubitsch, David Manning, and Rick Hazard. I was kind of hoping I'd find out who the executive secretary was of the Texas State Athletic Commission in 1985. But apparently they don't go into that much depth. But they certainly love their we are shown throughout the world thing. And yeah, you got the the satellite effect in the open for world-class championship wrestling. But it did air in Israel, which I think is kind of the main point. It's like, okay, it's like the exact opposite part of the globe from from Texas. So let's just go right into our first match, which is, oh, crap, Kelly Kaniski. I have nothing against Kelly Kaniski in general, but... He is taking on Buck Zumhoff, and I just want to throw up looking at Buck Zumhoff. Once again, you know, there's no need for me to repeat all the terrible things that he did. I'm sure there'll be a dark side of the ring on him if there hasn't been already, and it's going to be absolutely disgusting to watch. Rick Hazard, who has been named as one of the referees there, he's refereed this first match. He looks kind of funny. like He kind of looks like Weird Al, Ron Jeremy. Like, there, there was a guy at Bruins games that we used to call Weird Al Ron Jeremy because he looked like Weird Al, but he had, like, Ron Jeremy's hair or vice versa. You know what? I can't even remember. All I know is I was afraid that he died because I didn't see him for the entire season. Granted, I only went to, like, seven regular season games, but I didn't see him until the very last one. So, whew, bullet dodged. Weird Al Ron Jeremy lives on. Kaniski, you'd often see him wearing that jacket that said Canada with the CIN on one side and the ADA on the other. Canada is the best country, I think, for that. Like, to, for, to have it on jackets. 
I mean, if you go to Roots, like any location, I know that it's in the United States, but I was introduced to it at a place in Toronto. So you can get anything that just says Canada on it. I feel like as a country, they they are really into doing that. Jackets. It's funny how I never saw Bret Hart wearing a, a jacket or a shirt that just said Canada. Maybe a Team Canada hockey jersey. I don't know. But it should be no surprise. Kelly Kaniski, son of former NWA champion and referee who can't get the freak out of the way at Starcade 83, Gene, started up in Stampede Wrestling, as a lot of guys do. He went to JCPs here in World Class, AWA. So he went to a bunch of different places. He even made a few appearances in WWF, but he never quite reached. Obviously, he's not going to reach the stardom of his father. He's not going to become world champion. But he was better, I think, than some of the other second-generation wrestlers of his era, which might be damning with faint praise because we're talking about David San Martino and Angelo Mosca Jr., how the hell have I gone without having an Angelo Mosca Jr. match on this podcast? I mean, considering that Angelo Sr. would be there, you think it would be right up my alley. Boy, I'm doing a hell of a job stalling, you know, not talking about the guy who's facing Kelly Kadiski here. This is actually a rematch from Christmas Star Wars in 84. And we start out with Kadiski grabbing an arm, showing that he's ready for when he does make it to the AWA. As Buck then rolls out of it to counter and gets a wrist lock. And every time he does the fired up bit, once again, I want to go grab a trash can, make sure that there's enough room in there to hold all of my vomit. Goes into a hammer lock, you know, a bunch of reversals and stuff. And single leg takedown by Buck and then a step o- into a step over toe hold. But a monkey flip by Kaniski and a backdrop from Buck, which it's kind of going back and forth here. As much as it is, I really don't care about any of the actions. So I'm going to throw it to Bill Mercer, who, and this has been screwing me up lately. I can never remember if this is a simile or a metaphor. I thought it was simile like as, whatever. That's what Reunion Arena is to downtown Dallas, Texas. Convention Center in Tarrant County at Fort Worth is its complement. So that is Wrestling Star Wars in Fort Worth. Come on. And this is coming up right now, sort of a pump handle yank on that poor left arm of Kelly Kaniski. You can tell he's a news guy from the awkward transition. He sounds like the male anchor on a morning show. And speaking of blah, 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 here's Kelly Kaniski getting his arm pulled off. Like, all right, we, we get it. But interesting that he's comparing Reunion Arena to some convention center in Fort Worth that I would assume is nowhere near in size to what Reunion Arena was. That was built... In 1980, I believe it was, for the expansion, Dallas Mavericks sat like 20,000 people. So we're not talking like a small arena. And when I hear convention center, I'm pretty sure that it did not seat as many as 20,000 people. Again, I cannot separate Buck Zumhoff from his crimes. Now, for whatever reason, I can do it with Benoit, at least in you know small doses. If you notice, I don't really, I try not to pick shows that have Benoit matches because what the hell am I going to add? What the hell am I going to add on Buck Zumhoff? I mean, the, the guy, he, what he did is so terrible, I just absolutely refuse. It's too heinous that I, I even, I can't even talk about it. And the problem with this match, other than the fact that he's in it and alive, is that it's feeling like a time on the draw. They announced that it's going to be, they're at the five minute mark. 
So, yeah, I'm just getting exhausted watching this. So go ahead and riff, Bill Mercer. As Mark Lorenz always says, this is world-class championship wrestling seen throughout the world. And part of that world is Houston, Texas. A great city by the bay. And our friends in Houston and there watch on Channel 26 KTXH. I was a little confused there because talking about the global reach of world class. And we're like, oh, yeah, and we're on in Houston. Part of that world is in Houston. But then he goes on to call it the city by the bay, which I thought, yes, indeed, there is Trinity Bay near Houston. But I have never heard a single person refer to Houston as the city by the bay. That's San Francisco. I mean, there's a whole freaking journey song. Plus... If if you were to say city by the bay, name a city by the bay, San Francisco would be first. You'd probably say Tampa second because, you know, Tampa Bay is in all the sports team names. Maybe even Green Bay just because of the Packers. Maybe even some people would say North Bay, you know, if if you were in Canada, but not Houston. I mean, yes, I know it's on the water, but for God's sakes, nobody ever calls it the city by the bay. Channel 20 is my TV. It's owned by the Fox Corporation at this time. So I'm really pulling for Kaniski in this match because there is nothing worse than fired up babyface duck buck Zoomhoff. Jeez, I almost <laughs> I I kind of want to call him F Zoomhoff, but I I wrote that I I almost thought he said duck when I was listening to it, and uh, duck was a character on the show Mad Men that of course I've spoken reverently many many times played by Mark Moses but I did not know that he appeared on an episode of Golden Girls 24 years previous portraying Blanche's late husband's illegitimate son and it really looks like him too anyway if I have I stalled talking about this match long enough as Zumoff gets dropped on the top rope and then we get a sorry looking clothesline and an elbow for two a chin lock and now I'm starting to fear the time limit again. Please do not let this thing go to the time limit. As it starts working the stomach, Kaniski does. I wish he would work about eight inches lower. It would save everybody a lot of time and trouble. Corner whip, but then Kaniski runs into knees. But he quickly shakes it off, but then puts his head down. He caught a mistake by a ring veteran. The other thing I want to point out about Kelly Kaniski is he looks really old in the ring i don't know if it's like his shaved head because it's not, not a lot of guys in 85 who looked like that but he's only 24 years old but he's also one of those guys in 1985 who's not wearing any knee pads so it, it makes him look older but also facially as well he he does look you know like he's in his mid-30s at this point as Zumhoff brandishes the boombox radio but he doesn't do anything with it, and he gets caught with a side backbreaker, which gets Kaniski the one, two, three. This was eight minutes and 20 seconds of just an absolute pile of shit. There's the loser. We're going to be back with another great bout. There's the winner as World Class Championship Wrestling will return in just a moment. I said it earlier. Bill Mercer, he might not be the greatest wrestling announcer in the world. However, Please keep this in mind the next time you're pondering his place in history or if he's better than this guy or that guy because that is something that you should definitely put in the positive column where when the camera was on Buck Zumhoff, he said, there's the loser. 
And sure enough, <laughs> true words have never been spoken on a professional wrestling program. So into the next match, we got the crippler Rip, Rip Oliver taking on Private Terry Daniels, last seen in the WWF in 1984 as part of the Cobra Corps with Sergeant Slaughter. He's wearing the full Marine outfit, which he did for some of the tapings. I, I know he appeared on Piper's Pit in the full Marine uniform, which is kind of an issue, which I'll get into in a moment. He's five foot eight. This is his debut, so he's kind of a small guy working here in world class, but he was not here for all that long. He did this match and then a couple of more later in the year, but he's mainly working mid-south around this time. Rip Oliver, by contrast, the guy that I definitely associate with Portland wrestling first. He's kind of in that club with Buddy Rose and Billy Jack, who, of course, we see a little bit later. It seemed to have been some sort of weird connection between Portland and world class. I don't know if Don Owen and Fritz had some sort of trade agreement or whatever, but guys would bounce back and forth between those two territories. But Oliver was in Portland the most, but he was pretty much any place that you could possibly name. I I thought, well, I don't think he was in the AWA, but sure enough, he was. It's really Jim Crockett Promotions, the only place that he did not appear. And he has a place in history, a trivial place, (laughs) as being the masked super ninja on the Saturday night's main event in November of 1988 against the Ultimate Warrior. we got to find a guy who will, will take all of Warrior's offense. Let's get Rip Oliver, who did some jobs for him back in the summer of 87 when Warrior was even more green. He was also an enhancement talent in 1980 World Class Championship Wrestling when it was actually known as NWA Big Time. I actually considered doing a show from 1980. It might, it might have actually been Texas Big Time. I don't know, but... From November of 1980. It's actually the weekend of the Who Shot JR thing. <laughs> Should be kind of a funny thing to do the wrestling show from Dallas at that time. But yeah, big time wrestling. It's like every show, I've complained about this in the past, being called championship wrestling or all-star wrestling. There's also multiple big time wrestlings as well. Although I guess it you know, varies by territory. That the big time wrestling, I believe, is out of Detroit. That was that was the Sheik's territory. But the fact, big time, I mean, that's what makes the WrestleMania 22 song so confusing. And I think that might have been what uh, Gabriel was singing about. Peter Gabriel. I don't know. Keithy had a bit of a rant. I don't know if it was last GFA Live or the one before about how Peter Gabriel is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice, but Phil Collins is only in once. And how that doesn't really seem to make sense since Phil Collins is the superior. Well, yeah, he is the superior solo artist because he's a much more deep body of work. Anyway, to get back to Terry Daniels and why he probably shouldn't be wearing the full Marine outfit. like there, There is a Marine code. I didn't know much about this at all. But this is actually right off the United States Marines website. When, with regard to the uniform and how it should be treated, Marines and sailors cannot wear their uniforms to events that further political activities, further private employment or commercial interests, or when an inf- inference of official sponsorship for the activity or interest could be drawn. Well, I guess it's that last part where he would run afoul. I mean, it's a private employment. Well, technically, I'm an independent contractor, right? So it's not private employment now, isn't it? And political activities, I I don't think working for Fritz is taking a political stand one way or the other. (laughs) It it just means that you're willing to play second fiddle to his kids. And taking off his 
Cobra Corps uniform. Uh, he tells me the first inductee into that is Terry Daniel. I'm just trying to picture this conversation between Terry Daniels, that's with an S at the end, and Bill Mercer, where, where Mercer goes up to him. You know, he's debuting in world class, got to know a little bit for the broadcast. Tell me a bit about yourself, young man. Well, I was in a fake made-up group in a different wrestling promotion that was led by a guy who skipped town a few months ago because they wouldn't let him make money off dolls sold in score- stores that ha- were based on, you know, him in some way. I'm just trying to picture all of that. But it does carry over stuff that happened at other promotions to this. And you know I like that. But it's more storylines. This is just kind of pathetic. Like, yeah, I was the first guy inducted into the Cobra Corps. Like, yeah, and you were the only freaking guy inducted into the Cobra Corps. Maybe you should stop playing that up when you're the member of a, when you're the first inductee of a two-man club. I mean, maybe not, you know, be so loud and proud about that particular thing because, it is kind of lame when you think about it. And maybe it's just because I've watched it too much. But when Mercer said Cobra, I thought he was going to say Cobra Kai. But, you know, Karate Kid had come out the year before. So he might have known what that was. But no, we're just going to bring back the Cobra Corps again. And Sla- Slaughter's not even around. So whatever. Second straight match where the face offers a handshake, but it's all for naught. Yeah, Zumhoff had offered one, but Kaniski was like, no, I know where your hands have been, buddy boy. Side headlock for Oliver to start out. A shoulder block, drop kick, and a chin lock for Daniels. You know, baby face offense number 78. So pretty deep in the book for Daniels. He got that name Crippler because he's probably crippled as many or more than anybody in the history of in... uh Professional wrestling. Well, luckily, the nickname Crippler would never have any negative connotations in professional wrestling ever again. <clears throat> so he goes, he's actually going to work on a specific body part, that being the shoulder, because Rip sidesteps a charge by, well, I don't know if it was a charge or running the ropes, but in any event, Daniels ends up on the outside. It looked like he had hurt his arm, but apparently he was just selling rather well. So good job, Terry Daniels. You, you made me believe there for a second. Because that was the point where I looked up. I was like, did he get hurt? And that's why he w- waited three months to appear in World Class again? No, he was working Mid-South literally the next night in Shreveport. So made that drive from Dallas on over there. He's brought back in with a vertical suplex, a double axe from off the top rope by Oliver. But it was actually to Daniels's left shoulder. So he continues his precision work on it, and he finishes him off with a shoulder breaker to the injured shoulder, picking up the one, two, three. And I should mention that Rip Oliver passed away in March of 2020, which if you had to pass away at any particular point in time, because I think it was March 5th, it, it probably for the best that you would do it prior to all of this stuff. Because what would really suck is you make it through this entire thing. The last 18 months of your life is the last 18 months. That would not be good. And now, because Rip Oliver had passed away, now perhaps, I'm not, I'm not making any promises on this, that I won't get him confused with Rip Rogers anymore. Because I just in my head, like two guys named Rip who were wrestlers in the 80s. And yeah, they had different looks and everything. But all right, Rip Rogers is now the alive guy. Terry Daniel looked great. And we're going to be back with something else great. An interview with Billy and Sunshine next on World Class Championship Wrestling.
He said that Terry Daniels, or Terry Daniel, as he put it, looked great, even though he just lost the match in under three and a half minutes. But yeah, he looked great, but it's merely a device for him to say, speaking of other things that are great, here's an interview with Billy and Sunshine. Billy, I'm like, Billy Joel is on world-class television? What, What the hell? No, Billy Jack, Billy Jack Haynes. But this is during a period in his career where he's just going by Billy Haynes to somehow honor his father, which I, I don't quite understand. Like, did his father just hate the name Jack or something? I, I, I just don't quite understand. So this is like a talk show of sorts. And this is one of Bill Mercer's strengths because this is something like what a re- regular news reporter would do. And not every news reporter is capable of pulling this off. So, again, credit to him. Sunshine, she's not exactly at her 1983 peak here. She had to go away for a little while and, you know, dry out. And she has stayed away totally from the wrestling business since she left in either the end of 86 or the beginning of 87. She was in the UWF for a while. So here's Billy Jack, who I had mentioned how Rip Oliver appeared in all sorts of places. Billy Jack was all over the place in 1985, which it sounds like the Johnny Cash song, you know, I've been everywhere, but he went to Florida, Portland, Mid-South, World Class, Texas All-Star, the remains of St. Louis, <laughs> Jim Crockett, Central States, even New Japan in the spring. I, I, I don't know if I could develop a beat behind that. That is a lot of territory hopping in a 12-month span, but he seemed to really fit the mold of a Von Erich friend. You know, the guy that they keep around to be the non-Von Erich guy in the tag matches. But obviously, as everybody who has followed Billy Jack Haynes for even as little as three and a half minutes, the length of the Terry Daniels match, that he's kind of a volatile guy and will take off. Like, he left Jim Crockett Promotions at the end of 85 because he didn't like his Starcade payoff. Problem is, if you just keep burning bridges, eventually you're just going to run out of options and you're just going to have no place to go. Of course, Portland was always home for him, as I mentioned with like Rip Oliver, Billy Jack Haynes, one of those. But oh wait, no, he is now Billy Haynes and all right, fine, we're just going to hear from him and Sunshine in kind of a personality building segment. Just to recap it, uh, you know, very briefly, uh, uh, my father... uh is very ill. He's in a nursing home right now, and uh, he's 57 years old. He's got diabetes. Uh, he's totally blind. He can't walk. And uh, like I said before, everybody's had their hardships in life. And uh, I'm not trying to make anybody have the sympathy for me or anything like that. But uh, I want to change my name back to, to Billy Haynes. That's my original name. My uh, my past was kind of uh, bad, and uh, my dad and I were really never very close because of that. And uh, now I realize just uh, I want to share some of the spotlight with him. I want the family name of Haynes for the rest of my life because I love my dad very much and we're close as father and son can be now and uh, that's just the way it's going to be the rest of my career, Billy Haynes. Spoiler alert, he would leave the area only weeks after this interview and would never be known as Billy Haynes anywhere else. So at least in no result that I've seen is he referred to as Billy Haynes. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they just put Billy Jack Haynes because that's what he's commonly known as. But this is just like this weird interlude here. Maybe this is why he didn't talk about his time in Texas when he did that interview on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. What about the future, then, as uh, Billy Haynes? You know, Bill... I think it's wonderful that Billy's changing his name to Billy Haynes for his father. But whether you call him Billy Haynes or Billy Jack, 
He's still the same man. And, and you know, you ask him what it, what's in the future for him. What, what are right. his goals? Well, what I see personally is a world champion. It's now just occurred to me that before this, he might have just been simply known as Billy Jack and added the Haynes in order to honor his father. So, I don't know. It doesn't really matter all that much, does it? What I see in the immediate future is someone who can take care of the people, the few people here that I want taken care of. And uh, I must say that I've, I've never seen someone with so much ability and ambitious as, ambition as this man. Well, excuse me, but... Uh... I appreciate that uh, comment, but what, what is the connection here, Billy, between you and Sunshine? Uh, is she your manager? Or, uh, is she a business associate? Or? I know it's an obvious line of questioning there, but I, I just expected to blurt out, Hey, you two f***ing, what's going on between you two? Let me smell your fingers, Billy Jack. I want to see where they've been. No, Bill, uh, uh, Sunshine isn't my manager or my business associate or anything like that. Uh, uh, we have no ties like that whatsoever. Sunshine, when I came uh, uh, to a world-class area, uh, I didn't know who I was going to be up against. I knew it was the toughest competition in the world right here in, in Texas. And uh, Sunshine has uh, been on the other side of the fence, too. She knows the ins and outs of the Jake Roberts, the Gina Hernandez, the Chris Adams. And uh, she's got a collection of wrestling tapes that's unbelievable that I have seen. And uh, this has helped me very much since I've been here with my success. And uh, along with, uh, with my full Nelson, which... Uh, is my finishing hold, a submission hold, and Sunshine and the tapes and everything. She's helped me out so much that I feel we can go all the way to the top here in the, uh, in the uh, world-class area, Bill. All right, that was fascinating, mainly because Billy Jack seems to be li living some sort of wrestling fan nerd's dream where, first of all, he's hanging out with a blonde who might not be as good-looking as she used to be, but she's perfectly fine, and she likes to party, and she also has a stack of wrestling tapes longer than the day, quite frankly. And he gets all of that. So clearly you can see the attractions. Like, say you want to f a chick without saying you want to f a chick. That's basically what that was. One fall, 15-minute time limit. Hailing first from Georgia, 240 pounds. Welcome to the ring, Sean Nichols. I don't know if Lorenz said Nickel or Mickle, but it doesn't matter because it's supposed to be Michaels. I mean, that's how it says on the screen, although it's spelled Sean, S-E-A-N. So he spells it like Sean Michaels, the porn star. <laughs> what I actually find interesting about the porn star Sean Michaels is that he actually came up with that name after Sean Michaels had been wrestling in 1989. But he combined or he says he combined the name using Michael Jordan with Sean Connery, and that's how he combined those two to become Shawn Michaels. I was also kind of surprised by that, because Shawn Michaels, the porn star, was 31 when he started appearing in movies, so I guess never too old to start doing that. No, no, no! Alright, maybe there are limits on this, but the fact that there was Shawn Michaels, the wrestler, who I'm not all that crazy about, coexisting with Shawn Michaels, the porn star, who, by the way, it made whatever the hell the Porn Hall of Fame is called as well. Uh, I'm learning so much reading this guy's Wikipedia page. I mean, I'm probably going to regret having this on my phone for some reason, but he was elected president of the Adult Performers Actors Guild, APAG, in 2016. It's, re <laughs> it's really... AVN Hall of Famer, 1995. So he made it before Sean did. I, I don't know if he, like, 
made the Hall of Fame as a single, but also as the member of a gangbang as well. I mean, who who knows? But anyway, I should stop stalling here because I actually do want to talk about Billy Haynes, Billy Jack, taking on Shawn Michaels, who, by the way, he must he must have gotten pissed at his name being pronounced in the singular. But I would say to him, look, you're you're not Wahoo McDaniel, okay? Wahoo, I think they added a plural to because he was so big and larger than life and all the stories about him. You're you're just Sean Mike, okay? We're actually going to shorten it a little bit. What's funny here is third straight match, we get a handshake attempt, but this one they actually do shake hands. So it's like, oh, okay, apparently this is a Ring of Honor show from 2003. So let us all just bask in the glory of Shawn Michaels getting his ass kicked. And this isn't a parking lot in Syracuse, New York. Shawn Michaels! Young man who is quite handsome. A young man who did not give us much in the way of an interview when we asked him. He said, just say my name correctly, Sean Michael. Okay. Sean's one demand was, just say my name correctly. That's all I ask. But even Mercer, he wasn't even going to give that to him. So this is what turned Sean Michaels into a dick for years to come. And it's not like... Oh, he was given bad information. Like, on the Chiron, on the screen, it says Shawn Michaels. Like I said, it's different spelling of the first name than what you become accustomed to later. But it's not hard to say Michaels, okay? Like, Michaels is a store. They sell frames. I go there and I buy, you know, too many vinyl album frames because I'm running out of space. And, in fact, I want to give some of them away at this point. But Sean was not in world class for very long. And when you see the finish of this match, I mean, <laughs> you'll figure out why. He, he also was on this taping the previous week's show. He is facing future WrestleMania opponent, the one-man gang. Yes, he was Akeem at WrestleMania five, And he clotheslined Shawn Michaels in that match straight to hell. And just like WrestleMania five, he lost that one as well. So Sean goes to the eyes in the corner. He does a cross-corner, he gets cross-corner whipped, climbs up to the top rope, does a backflip. Billy Jack just kind of hung back with like, huh, what the hell's going on here? And immediately catches him with the full Nelson because Sean landed with his back to Billy Jack. And it's over. It's over that quick, like under a minute and a half. This was Tyson Spinks. And this is also exactly what would happen when you take... I'm not saying that Billy Jack is a generic 1980s pro wrestler, but he is kind of of that archetype. And Shawn Michaels is building an army of clones in NXT at this point, you know, undersized dudes who do, you know, quote-unquote, cool moves and who have matches that last too long. This is what would happen with generic 80s wrestler versus NXT guy of now, which is why I enjoyed this match so much. I'm going to give this the full Monty. Five stars. This is this is a five-star Shawn Michaels match in 1985. Tell your friends. Coming to the spotlight, to the center of the ring, the man who carries the awesome responsibility of the World Heavyweight Championship, the flamboyant. Oh, flamboyant is maybe not the word. The spectacular. Ric Flair, there he is. Oh, you talk about somebody festooned. Somebody who stepped out of Harper's Bazaar. Vanity Fair. 
On a weekly basis, World Class TV would have a lot of name matches. When we get to the end of this show, Bill Mercer runs down the following week and just casually drops, oh yeah, the Fantastics versus the Midnight Express next week, and Kerry Von Erich versus Chris Adams. Now, you might argue that they did certain matchups too much, but it's not like they were holding back a ton of things for TV. I mean, I covered the Freebirds and the Von Erichs. I think it was the last show that I did from World Class very early in 1983. But now we get Terry Gordy taking on the NWA World Heavyweight Champion Ric Flair. And I've spent a lot of time, even though I haven't been watching as much wrestling, for for whatever reason, I was thinking of the concept of the traveling NWA champion for a certain period of time. Let's say from around Jack Briscoe's era through when it basically stops, which is probably about the end of 1985. I know I've spoken of, or I covered the DiBiase Flair match, and that's November of 85, and then you stop seeing Flair going into other territories after a certain point. But this one stands out for me because I knew that the Freebirds were faces at a certain point, but I could not remember the exact reason why, and I, I don't know why I blanked that they had a feud with Devastation Incorporated. I think part of it might be that it was going to start in the middle of 1984, they lose the Loser Leaf Town match. They go away for a while. They end up in the WWF. Gordy and Roberts are there for basically a hot second. I mean, Gordy was there long enough to invent the Kawada driver on an episode of Maple Leaf Wrestling. <laughs> episode 9 in the archive. Oh, wait. It was not that one. It was a different Maple Leaf that I... I don't even know if I've covered that one. It's the September 29th, 84 Maple Leaf Wrestling, which will be on Peacock approximately never, I think. But... They were associated with Killer Khan in the middle of 84, and I guess he was just kind of stolen away by General Skandor Akbar's Devastation Incorporated. So that's how that feud really gets started. When Gordy comes back to world class, that's who he has the feud with, and eventually Hayes and Roberts follow him as well. And what's funny is the Freebirds and the Von Erichs, despite their blood feud in 1983, at the David Von Erich Memorial Parade of Champions, Super Spectacular, Heaven Needed a Champion show in May of 85, they're actually on the same side in this massive tag match. But the traveling champ, to get back to that point, it, like I always wonder how much of a workable concept that is, because ideally you have a heel champion. So if you take Let's let's start after Jack Briscoe was the champion and, and start with Terry Funk and then go all the way through Flair into early 86 when Crockett kind of monopolized the title. Well, not kind of. They did monopolize the title after that. You have, you have to have a heel champion most of the time in order for it to work. But what's interesting at this point is, yes, Flair had the Starcade match with Dusty and Thanksgiving of 84 at Starcade. But he's still a face. In fact, he's on Jim Crockett television in the spring, standing next to Dusty Rhodes doing promos and that that sort of stuff. It, he doesn't really turn full-fledged heel in that territory until the fall and they attack Dusty in the cage and bring hard times on him and hit Dusty Rhodes and his family. So you have, ideally you have a heel go into Territory X, Territory Y, take on the local, local baby face, Local babyface comes close to winning the title or gets screwed out of it or they do a time limit draw. It's usually one of those things. The problem sometimes, I think, 
is that the traveling champion kind of ends up looking weak, and this was a particularly pronounced problem, I think, with Flair, in that he might have been giving too much in terms of, you know, maybe not making himself look like a world champion. I mean, before the match, yes, you heard the description. This is actually one of his, this is a pink robe for Flair. You do not see this very often. It kind of made him look really skinny, very slimming robe. Maybe Conrad should buy that one. That's not a fat joke. I'm just saying that, you know, it it is a rather slimming... He probably already owns it, anyway. So to get back to my point, if you have a face NWA traveling champion and he's going around, he still has to have the ability to play heel in the various territories because if he goes into Mid-South, if he goes into World Class... Ideally, you want your local babyface to challenge for the title because I think that would sell more tickets than guy from another place, world champion, comes in and defends against the local heel that doesn't have the same sort of cachet. So you're kind of limited in that model, I think, or you have to be particularly creative. If you recall, that's why I love the Flair DiBiase stuff in late 85 because DiBiase earned the shot, but Dick Murdoch felt that He should have gotten it, and that's a very simple thing you could do. And sure enough, that is what they do here in World Class, although they kind of get it over with at the beginning because Billy Billy Haynes makes an appearance with Sunshine and just decides to drop a challenge and leave. Well, interrupt this match. Ric Flair, you and I are no strangers. Excuse me. You and I are no strangers to NWA professional wrestling. I think I came down to the world-class area. I'd like to face the winner of this match. If it's okay with you, Terry Gordy, it may be you. It could very well be you. It could be Ric Flair. But I think I qualify in the world-class area to wrestle the winner of this match for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. You accept that, Terry? Well, a handshake sometimes is as good as your word. I don't think Ric Flair will shake a hand. Not of a challenger like... Up, oh, Ric Flair. I have to admit, I'm a little disappointed in Ric Flair here. Not because he didn't shake hands with Billy Haynes. It's just that I, I was surprised that he didn't do that move where he you know, holds out his hand and then pulls it back real quick and runs it through his hair. I, I guess he hadn't added that to his repertoire quite yet. So Billy, he had not quite left yet. I mean, I'm not talking about the territory. I'm talking about the ring. He's just kind of hanging around there. Because Sunshine is there with him as well. And they're just hanging around. And, of course, when Ric Flair sees Sunshine, he's got to get in his two cents. You heard a little bit of it at the top of the show. But it's funny to see Ric Flair coming into a territory and just start macking it. Billy Jack... Since you seem to have brought such a luscious treat with you into the ring, I thought I would express something that few people in Dallas or anywhere else in the world would hear me say. But you know, I've always had everything in the world that I've ever wanted. You understand? If it didn't come to me naturally, I went out and bought it. In this case, I beat up the Von Erichs. I've driven the biggest car. I got the best looking airplane out there at DFW. But there's one thing in Dallas I've always wanted and have never possessed. 
Now, move your microphone. Just stand aside. I'm talking to you, darling. You know, for two years. <laughs> don't get nervous, hey. I know you're feeling that rush up and down your spine. For two years, I've been looking at you and I've been thinking, oh, how sweet it would be. So I tell you what, you allow me to give you one little kiss on those sweet little lips. And I'll go, no, wait a minute. And I'll guarantee you, you'll never look at another man again. <laughs> Just one kiss. Just one kiss. Oh, well, this is another kind of competition we've never had in the ring. Not bad, huh? What do you think, huh? What Not bad, bad, yeah. I wonder what you... Ah! Sunshine! Sunshine is tough. I don't think Ric Flair expected to run into something... A piece of dynamite like this. You've got a long way to go. Once again, I'm kind of picturing the negotiation of how this came to be because I was surprised that Sunshine actually kissed Ric Flair for that brief fleeting moment and then slapped him, which I was fully expecting. I just figured that she would, you know, lay one in on him right away. But I think that Flair's like, look, I'm not doing this match unless I get to kiss Sunshine. This is this is his leverage here. I mean, we're talking about somebody who just kissed Becky Lynch or whatever it was out of nowhere to the point where they edited it out of the pay-per-view a couple of years ago. God help me if I could remember the name of whatever show that was. But I certainly remember it happening and it being somewhat controversial. It's funny how Rick has his own tapes that he's been watching. Like, I've been checking you out for two years. Pretty good line. I mean... Obviously, it didn't lead anywhere because Billy Jack was going to be moving on. But funny enough that they did have matches later in 1985 in Portland in May and in Florida in July and then Portland again in the fall. A couple of them were 45-minute time limit draws. And I'd be interested, I don't think, I don't know if they're on tape or not, but if you took that a 45-minute draw with Flair and Billy Jack Haynes and put it side-by-side with any of the Luger matches, let's say Starcade 88 or Bash 88, or the Sting match at Clash of the Champions 1, how similar they might be because, well, Billy Jack and Sting aren't exactly the same guy. They're, they're kind of the same type, you know, kind of a power wrestler of sorts. And I would assume that the matches were laid out similarly, although maybe a little bit more simple for Sting because he was much newer to the business than Billy Jack was. The thing that's amusing is all of this is going on for like three, four minutes, and Terry Gordy is just, you know, standing in the corner chilling the entire time as all of this is happening. And they actually start, when the match finally does get underway, they start out very fast with chops to start. I mean, usually the chops would be the main course, and you'd have something else for the appetizers. But in any event, they they start out fast. Gordy gets a corner whip and backdrop, and then a military press slam. The the crowd is very, very into this. They are molten for Terry Gordy. And it's just so funny because you think of him, he's one of the most despised heels a couple of years before. But remember, the Freebirds were so good at it that at a certain point, 
the crowd secretly wants to cheer them. So that's why a Devastation Incorporated feud with the Freebirds would work so well. It kind of freshens things up. Not everything could be about Fritz's kids in this territory, which is kind of the... I know I spoke of everything in Smoky Mountain being revolving around Bob Armstrong and Jim Cornette. Kind of gets old after a while. If you're doing everything you know, around the Von Erich boys, that's going to get old after a while as well. Of course, various tragedies would kind of take care of the booking for them. They'd still do stupid stuff like, hey, let's throw Mike Von Erich out there, even though he looks like Tom Hanks at the end of Philadelphia. I mean, you know, some things like that. Fritz, definitely father of the year material. Gordy, as I was watching this, he has a certain... I can't really put my finger on it like the same way as somebody like Sid. In-ring charisma... I mean, with Sid, it kind of stands out and is very, very obvious. But Gordy has sort of the same thing. But I I really can't explain it because it's not like Terry Gordy is, you know, a great talker or or anything like that. He can certainly get by on that. But he was the in-ring charisma of the Freebirds. Michael Hayes was the out-of-ring charisma. And then Buddy Roberts, just sort of the goofy guy. So the combine the three of them, it all it all just works together really well. So Flair is just getting his ass kicked for the first several minutes of this match. We're setting it up that way. And he, he gets in a couple chops, but he's cut off immediately. And this kind of goes into, you know, uh, yeah, you're laying out the match like this, but... As I said, I always, I would always have concerns about the traveling champion looking weak going around. But yes, he will get control a little bit later in this match. Flare flip in the corner and a sleeper or sleep hold. As it, what the hell is the difference between a sleeper and a sleep hold? I mean, they're the same thing. Is it just like tomato, tomato, one of those things? Flare gets out of it with an eye gouge. So now he is finally able to get a little bit of heat on Gordy. Tosses him. To the outside, Gordy kind of trying to get his bearings out there as Flair kind of delays the count by standing too close to the ropes. Bronco Lubitsch, who's the referee, kind of has to push it back. I was surprised that Bronco got the assignment here and that this is a world-class show with no David Manning on it, which I, I thought was very interesting. We only we only saw Rick Hazard and Bronco. Bronco, of course, is kind of an old guy. You know, he, he does not get down fully for the count. You don't have an Earl Hebner problem with him where he kicks out one leg to telegraph a two count because Bronco could barely move his legs as it is. The dude would just get down on one knee, and sometimes his counts would be, you know, sometimes it'd be a little bit too fast, in my opinion. Knee drop by Flair gets a two count. Very deliberate, almost Harley Race-esque style offense. Got to build that heat. Gordy gets cut off by pulling the hair. It is a rather luscious mane of hair that Terry Gordy has at this time, but that actually just pissed him off, so Flair begs off in the corner. Several right hands by Gordy in an elbow drop gets a two count. And once again, as I mentioned, the around the world thing, the last time Mercer brought this up, oh yeah, we're on in Houston, Texas, if you can believe that, this wrestling show from Dallas, but Finally, he's going to pay it off by actually going to a different part of the world. Yeah, I bet you the World Class Championship Wrestling is around the world. Like in Channel 12 in Tokyo, Japan. Yes, sir. Ah, God. 
Pretty sure that's the reason why Daniel LaRusso went to Okinawa with Miyagi for a couple days in Karate Kid 2. Is because, well, I'm not going to miss an episode of World Class because we can pick up Channel 10 in Okinawa. And then he gets there and he's like, God, this is the village of time forgot. Secretly, he was mad that he couldn't watch World Class at that time. And you're like, you're full of crap, Pete. He was from Newark. He was a WWF kid. We don't know that, all right? I've painted a lot of these stories in my head. Just, you know, when they drove across the country, they had to stop at certain places. Maybe he saw World Class on TV. They went through Texas. I know that they took kind of a weird route. I, I, I don't know. I used to know exactly how they how they went across the country in the first Karate Kid. So who knows? Maybe Daniel Russo loved World Class Championship Wrestling. I, I, I don't know. Hammerlock on the mat as... Flair shoulder shoulder block drop down combo. He he loved calling loved that spot. It's in like every Ric Flair match that you've ever seen where you know he runs the ropes, goes for a shoulder block, even if it's against a much bigger man like Gordy. Feels like kind of a stupid thing to do in kayfabe. I don't have the hat on because I, I seem to have misplaced it. I think I might have left it inside the ottoman. He is met with a clothesline. Flair is, and the crowd is getting very loud at this point. But he needed a gut and a chop, followed by a corner whip. But Gordy bounds right back out with an inside cradle that picks up two. Goes for a backslide, and they reference Kerry Von Erich using the same move to win the NWA world title less than a year before. That also gets a two count, as Flair has apparently learned how to kick out of that. Kind of a possible low blow by Rick, just kind of like a head to the... Got, I don't know, it was, it was very borderline. And a pile driver attempt, but Gordy backdrops him out of it. I'm sure Steve Austin was looking on saying, if I ever get in a main event, I'm doing that exact same spot in every single match. But I'm going to do it on the floor to differentiate it. As Bill Mercer just casually mentions that Chris Adams feels that he should have gotten the title shot in this one. And when he says that, I'm expecting Chris Adams to make an appearance at some point. But... Spoiler alert, that never comes to be. And probably because Chris Adams had two shots at Ric Flair in 1984. There's a very good match in February where Adams is full-fledged babyface. And then when he aligns with Gary Hart, who I almost called Gary Coleman for a second, in November, around the time of Starcade, you know you know that Flair's not losing the title then, but of course people didn't know that then. So Flair gets attacked by Gary Hart when he has... Adams in a Boston Crab, which is a very, very strange to see Ric Flair using a submission hold that is not the figure four. So Flair does control here. He's got a front face lock down on the mat. He's using the ropes for leverage, and Gordy gets turned over into a pin attempt, so we're doing the thing where Gordy is barely kicking out because Flair has his feet on the ropes. A pile driver by Flair gets two count. He didn't get the full effect on that one, Jess, and yeah, he, he looked like he was going to, you know, do the move, and then he hesitated for a second, and then when he actually did go through with it, it did not look very good. Figure four attempt by Flair. He gets pulled over by his hair, kind of into the inside cradle thing that you would see as the counter, but it doesn't actually end up that way. He just ends up on his back. Gordy goes for a pin, gets a two count. Flair is up first, but his knee drop misses. Probably because he didn't measure it properly. And Gordy quickly goes for the figure four, seeing that Flair has landed on one of his knees. But Flair quickly gets to the ropes. Yet the another press slam spot by Gordy. And the Oriental Asiatic spike. I don't know. I seem to go back and forth with those moves by Gordy. 
But Flair, in what I found to be, once again in kayfabe, can't find the damn hat, he wisely, after he takes the move, he, he kind of rolls much closer to the ropes, which is very, very smart, because if somebody hits a big move like that, you should instinctively try and get close to the ropes, because on a pinfall, you can reach out a leg, or reach out your arm, maybe, and be able to break up the pinfall that way. So smart work by Flair on that one. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Who knows? Backdrop again. Flair begs off. And we get a reversal of a corner whip by Flair. And now we get a very, very odd spot that ends up being the finish of this match. Is Flair goes for a back suplex. It almost looked like he was going to place him on the top rope. And I thought, well, what the hell is he going to do with Gordy at that point? It, it just would have looked weird. Instead, he hits a back suplex, and it goes into the double pin spot. But what happens is Flair puts his foot on the rope and raises one of his shoulders. And Gordy just kind of lays there. And this is why I hate this finish so much. Because Gordy makes no effort, like, his shoulders are on the mat, basically no awareness by him of what's going on, and it's a pinfall attempt by Flair, because he does have his arms over the top after doing the back suplex, so are you supposed to say, okay, is this a double pin spot, well, no, it's not, because when it's over, Bronco Lubich drops the belt on Flair, who's exhausted, he's laying on his back, just, you know, leaves the belt with him, there's really... No huge complaint by Gordy. It's it's almost treated like a clean victory, even though Flair had his foot on the rope. I almost it, it, there was no leverage gained by Flair sticking his foot over. It was more to make the point. Look, you're not counting a double pin because my foot is on the rope. It was kind of in that style. But Bill Mercer's reaction, like his non-reaction to all of this, to me. Like, if you were watching any other territory, I feel like the announcer might have been a little bit more over the top about this. The winner of this match, Gordy in the corner. Gordy up in the corner and back, and maybe this is it. One, two, three, and clear, and the foot on the bottom rope. I was actually expecting less of a reaction from the crowd. I mean, yeah, you can hear boos, but it feels like it was just kind of a clean victory. Yeah, he has his foot on the rope, but again, it's not done in such a way where, oh, he's gaining an unfair advantage, you know, using it for leverage. You know, the flare foot on the ropes in the corner spot, or like how he pinned Luger at Starcade 88, that type of thing. That was not the case here. This is almost like a clean victory. So this is interesting in that it addresses my concern about the traveling champion looking weak. This is actually about where Flair looked pretty damn strong. He did. I'm not going to break down the percentage of offense that each guy got. It did seem to be fairly even if you know you you factored out that way. Gordy hit more high impact moves because he's the bigger guy. 
But it's it's interesting. They actually addressed the concern that I laid out about the traveling champion. So this was a fun match. I mean, it was not anything that would be an all time classic that would go on you know a best of Ric Flair you know two or three hour DVD, but certainly a fun you know where the traveling champion comes in faces the local babyface. There's no BS. There's no interference, which. When Chris Adams' name got mentioned, I thought, all right, well, that's going to happen, or somebody else is going to run in. But no, it was just a classic, traditional wrestling match between Ric Flair and Terry Gordy. And I have to say, I rather enjoyed this quite a bit. It didn't run any longer than it had to be, and they actually surprised me by not pulling any sort of extracurricular thing. It was just a straight-up match with a... I'm going to say it was a clean finish, even if, you know, some people might argue otherwise. And Mercer runs down what's on next week's show, but I alluded to this earlier. Oh, yeah, Fantastics versus Midnight Express. It's during that run. That that would be a reason for me to watch the first half of 85 World Class because of the Midnight Express run there. And Kerry taking on Chris Adams. So, ho-hum, just another week in World Class Championship Wrestling. And that'll do it for World Class Championship Wrestling for January 19th, 1985. In other podcasts this week, the Art Vantage Point guys, Joe Moran and Michael Quinn, are between episodes 230 and 231, so they do a longer form review, looking at a primetime wrestling from 1988, so right in my wheelhouse and it is the one from November the 22nd where Bobby Heenan steals a boat. And they do all of the Gorilla and Bobby segments on a boat. A bunch of gals in bikinis. A good time was had by all except for Gorilla who was beleaguered and had to make things right at the end. Oh, my good pal Steve Bennett, he and Dave Rollins host the 24-inch podcast celebrating the career of Hulk Hogan. And their next episode will be the Hulk Hogan-Paul Orndorff feud of 1986 that'll be out soon and steve's sportscasters podcast the next one will feature jimmy trainer so i know that there will be some good sports media talk as well i also want to give a shout out to the bottom line wrestling podcast hosted by fellow massachusetts native mike prue right now they i covered the career of stone cold steve austin i should say first but they are entering a very interesting part of austin's career but interesting kind of bad for Austin because it's April and May of 2002, right before the abyss. I don't know. When I wrote that down on paper, I started thinking of the Hal Holbrook speech from the end of Wall Street. But I like you. Just remember something. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss. I think I understand. I guess in that case, it was to rat on Gordon Gecko, which was the thing that was going to keep him out of the abyss. But in Stone Cold Steve Austin's case, I mean, didn't, he kind of went there in 02 and 03, because, I mean, that's really a part of his life that, frankly, he would like to forget. But, of course, he's come roaring back in more recent years. He's doing a Tide commercial that my wife particularly likes alongside Ice-T. 
I don't understand the point of the Tide commercial, though. Is it encouraging people to use washers with cold water? Or are they assuming that everybody washes with cold water and that they are trying to convince people that they are the best at that? I don't know. Maybe I'm just overthinking that a little bit. But for the next Greetings of Allentown, it's going to be something Paul Orndorff-centric. I I know, I have not done the Hogan-Orndorff betrayal angle of 1986, but there's plenty of other Paul Orndorff things that I haven't gotten to. I heard that there's a wonderful match with him and DiBiase from Mid-South in 1981. So who knows? I mean, I'm probably going to do the Hogan-Orndorff thing since, you know, that's... that's I've already covered the uh, Gary Spivey thing. I almost called him Dan Spivey, the, the whole the whole um, guru guy from the end of Orndorff's career. Also, I should plug this as well because I believe this is coming out tomorrow as this show drops on Friday. Jennifer Smith's You Heard About Pluto, an episode on Family Ties in which we watched a couple of Family Ties episodes from early 1985. Hey, just like... Just like this episode of World Class Television. And uh, I th- I think my audience will enjoy, you know, a show that is one plus hour on just family ties. I, I know I did for certain. Oh, and uh, some breaking news coming into the podcast. Approximately five weeks from now, WWE will be holding SummerSlam at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. I was very skeptical about the fact that they were having it in a football stadium in Las Vegas. But then, yes, there is a retractable roof there. I will be in Las Vegas for that. I don't have a ticket to the show. Oh, no, no. I My, my options are fully open. But I, I don't know. It's a Saturday afternoon in Las Vegas. Now that I think about it, it might be 120 degrees when that show starts. So I might want to go in there just for the air conditioning. Oh, wait, it's Las Vegas, and every casino is air conditioned, and it's free to just walk around and people watch. And frankly, I'm looking forward to that, among other things, in Las Vegas, a place I have not been in 12 years. So I don't know if anybody else out there is going, but uh, I'll, I'll be around the center strip area during my stay in Sin City. So that is it. For me this week. But please leave a five-star review for Greaves Ballantown GFA Live on Apple Podcasts because it provides what is known as social proof that you're listening to and enjoying this podcast. It also also makes me feel really good as well. So just consider that as well when you're leaving your five-star review. And tune in next time for another exciting episode of Greaves from Allentown. She's got a collection of wrestling tapes that's unbelievable that I have seen.